Thank you for tuning in to Talkie Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Prina Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Mike Chen, an incredible author whose newest novel, Star Wars Brotherhood, is one of my favorite new canon books in recent memory. We dive into his career, his process, and his work on this incredibly important piece of the saga. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 132, Mike Chen. experience with the saga did it impact you growing up what was that kind of like for you so i was born in the late 70s so i was basically born right into the original trilogy um mm-hmm. and so i grew up with a lot of star wars toys a lot of star wars toys that i wanted that my parents did not buy for me um <laughs> the one that i always remember um distinctly having um besides luke skywalker with like the yellow lightsaber that you 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 pushed out of his his arm mm-hmm. um was the uh the tauntaun like the vinyl tauntaun with like the slit in it that you could like stuff <laughs> a figure in um right. which it, like I, I my four or five year old self did not quite comprehend but i i watched return of the jedi in the theater it was just always present in my life and then when the thrawn trilogy came out that was a really big deal for me. Like my my next door neighbor slash best friend growing up, like we were equally into Star Wars together. So when Thrawn trilogy came out, like that was a really big deal for us. And then um, like we went to we went to college together and we we roomed together and we found mutual Star Wars nerds on our dorm floor. So like when the special <laughs> editions came out, freshman year of college, like it was a really really big deal. Um, and and then like then it started to become part of pop culture again and so like being able to enjoy like the build-up to the phantom menace and everything in college mm-hmm. that whole time period like there really has never been a period of my life probably like the the most distant that i've been from star wars is like maybe like 86 to 89 ish or something like that and that's just without like access but it was all like i remember like when it would come on TV, like you know, as like the NBC movie of the week or whatever, be like, oh, Empire is on. Let's watch it. You know, so it was it it was always there. Like I've I've just always been a fan and and I've passed it on to my daughter. Actually, last night um, we were just watching Mandalorian with her for Star Wars Day. Oh, there we go. So I, I had wrote a long essay on Nerdist about how we indoctrinated my daughter in uh, using the machete order. Like we protected her uh-huh. from spoilers until she was about four and a half. And then like we had like this whole process of how we worked her into it without spoilers to maximize like her emotional connection with the characters. So it's right. very much a part of our lives. I, I would be interested what else while you were growing up kind of impacted you, obviously maybe not the same way as Star Wars, but things that you gravitated towards or things that were inspiring you as you were kind of learning what you enjoyed and learning kind of the, the beats that you were really gravitating towards. So it's kind of funny because my dad loves the original series for Star Trek. And mm. Star Trek is like, I, I always say that like my holy trinity of science fiction in my life is Star Wars, Star Trek, and Doctor Who. And just de- depending on where we are in life, some take slightly higher precedence at the time. And it's just, you know, but they're all, we all, we love them equally. For the original series like of Star Trek, like, I just didn't really dig it that much. Um, it really took 
like next gen and like and i resisted next gen quite a bit growing up because my <laughs> because my dad watched it and i like it took right. me a little bit to appreciate it growing up like the big thing that like it hit at the right exact moment for me because i was like kind of exiting out of like the return of the jedi phase um and i needed to glom onto something was um it's kind of obscured now but it, like, it was mind-blowing at the time it was um a series called robotech which was from like this landmark 80s anime series where there was this science fiction writer named Carl Masek who took three different anime series and he rewrote like the overarching plot to like make them an intergenerational war story. And like the fact that uh -huh. he actually pulled it off and it's logical is kind of insane and brilliant. And like, God, that, that show has just stuck with me for generations. And like, I still will revisit the novels the novels were uh written by uh star wars writers brian daly and james luceno so they're they i still revisit them i still watch it from time to time um i haven't gotten my wife to sit down and watch it with me yet because it's like <laughs> 85 episodes of a show is a long commitment but uh yeah like that was that was the main thing is like i noticed some people are into both sci-fi and fantasy Fantasy has just never really done it for me. So sci-fi, like going from Star Wars to Robotech, like the fantasy of like being a pilot, like either an X-Wing pilot or like a Veritech pilot in Robotech, like that was always there. And then playing a lot of video games and PC games in like the 80s and 90s, like I always prefer like Metroid to Zelda or Space Quest to King's Quest. So something about like being in space just did it for mm. me. Whereas like, I enjoy Zelda. It doesn't grab me the same way, like the same way, like don't tell anyone this, but I can really just take or leave Lord of the Rings. Like it just doesn't do mm, it for interesting, me. Yeah. Interesting. I, uh, I'll cut that out of the interview just uh, for your own sake. If, only because, <laughs> if you can see my bookshelf behind me is half Star Wars and then just half just a Lord of the Rings shelf. And it's, all, anyway, it's great. More power uh, to everyone who loves Lord of the Rings. My wife. So my wife is like, She's all into like Dragon Age and Skyrim and like, you know, she reads like D&D books and everything. And it's like, you know, that's like the biggest split in our marriage is that she loves fantasy <laughs> and sci-fi equally. And I'm like, I don't get Skyrim. I will play Mass Effect for like the 10th time, but I don't get Skyrim. That's too funny. I, I mean, you, you brought up college briefly and I'd be interested in your experiences in school and you kind of doing more practical things right? engineering mm -hmm. and feeling the, the need to gravitate towards that. How were you remaining creative or were you able to remain creative during that time? And what kind of brought you back into the, the fold of, of writing and of kind of exploring with words? So, I mean, part of the engineering degree um, <laughs> was like being a child of Asian immigrant parents that they're like, okay, you're getting a practical degree if we're paying for it. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I guess that's how it's going to go. Um, so I actually made like this kind of internal vow to myself that like um, when I got to college, because you people usually take like three or four classes a quarter, um, you know, depending on like their workload or how difficult a class is. And I told myself that every quarter I'm going to take like an – additional arts class or history mm. class or something like that part of it to like meet women <laughs> outside of the engineering field or meet people really too <laughs> I, I mean like honestly like like to just not get stuck in a rut with like that the people in that track um 
but then also to like because I, I realized that like this was going to open my door to like education and and so many so much information like outside of a, just like this technical field um mm -hmm. and i've really grown to appreciate the technical training of it like i love math i love talking about math with my daughter and i appreciate mm -hmm. everything that i learned in there but like i i took so many like comparative literature history mm. i basically have a theater minor um they didn't really offer one when uh, at the time but i have like enough credits for it so it was <laughs> it was like i i and i i know part of this i mean this goes way deeper than just like talking about a star wars novel but i know like part of this is like an internalized like rebellion against like the stereotypes that i saw growing up so right. it's like you know i really wanted to like push myself past that and like growing up you see like in the 80s and 90s like the images of asian kids was like were like the math geeks that like you know are completely like made fun of by the jocks and like desexualized and everything so it's like mm -hmm. you know I, I wanted more for myself so um yeah so i i i hit creative writing um like i had always been good at writing i took creative writing senior year um and my teacher had told me that um she said like at the end of the quarter she said you should change majors and i'm like i can't i'm like a senior in engineering like <laughs> my parents will murder me um yeah uh, but then she said like just keep keep writing because you really understand this. And that, mm. um, like, we're still in touch. Like I found her after I got my agent in 2015 and we still talk and I send her like my books that when they come out. So she, she actually works in publishing now. It's very interesting again, cause then looking at what you started to write in, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of sports writing, honing your craft, mm -hmm. at least in, in the nonfiction route or to trying to figure out like personal forays. And, and that's something, that I mean, like I was looking, I was like, oh, SB Nation. I was like, yes, I also wrote for SB Nation. Oh, cool. To, you know, tried tried to figure out, yeah, back in the heyday. Uh, what was that like for you, uh, being professional in your writing, or at least seeing it online and and seeing people's responses to it as you kind of started to build and build and build uh, with what you were doing? So what happened, like my my deviation into uh, sports writing. It was completely happenstance because it was like the early 2000s. So like online journalism was like really starting to just emerge. And there were some sports sites where they said, like, if you want to write for us, submit an audition piece. Um, and I knew I was good at writing. And I knew like my like my brain tends to analyze everything. And so mm -hmm. like when because I watch a lot of hockey in my life. <laughs> um <laughs> And so like, I, I knew I would be able to like write analytically. So like, I just started writing for these sites. And then as the internet, like journalism presence, like started to become like the place where outlets would start to go. A lot of us from that time just got picked up and like uh, absorbed by like bigger outlets. So that's like where the mm -hmm. Fox sports thing came in. That's why I got offered like an SB Nation site and I did some stuff for Yahoo. I got on NHL.com, like things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And it was just like right place, right time. And I didn't have time to write fiction then because like um, managing an SB Nation site and like pumping out articles about like trade deadlines and stuff like that, like you just don't have time. Like that's, if you're gonna do a hobby, like that, that's your hobby. Um, and so around like 2008, 2009, I started to think like, you know, I would really, really like to get back into fiction. So I started writing again. A few years after that, I was like, okay, I, I've accomplished everything that I want to do with, with sports writing. Um, so I made a marked shift to pivot into 
geek media. So I, I really targeted writing for like, my first piece was for the Mary Sue. And I was really thrilled mm -hmm. because at the time that was like my favorite site. And it was a, um, it was a Star Wars article, actually. It was like in defense of the prequels, mm. <laughs> appropriately. <enough. laughs> Look at that. <laughs> um, so I, I started to, to write more towards that. And it was kind of um, strategic, like because I was starting to try to get my, my work out to agents I thought like, well, if I can get in with like editors at like these geek media sites, then like if I do have a novel to promote, then like maybe, you know, they'll be more friendly towards, you know, like publicity pieces or whatever. And it actually has mm -hmm. worked out that way where, because I know all these editors at these uh, right. sites now, it's like when, when we come to do publicity for um, my, uh, my Harper Collins novels, much more than Star Wars. Because Star Wars is its own machine, but with my Harper Collins novels, like my publicist will like tackle the mainstream media, and then I will just reach out to like all the the sci-fi editors that I know. So it's right. like it it allows both of us to kind of take advantage of that. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, it was I would actually just got asked this on on Twitter the other day. Like it doesn't really help the creative process, um, but I would say like the, the technical side of writing, like word choice. And being able to self-edit and like recognize like what yeah. your what your faults are, like it's all like building that writing muscle. So it's like it's been very valuable. Um, in addition to like just you know, hey, I get to be on StarTrek.com. This is awesome. Yes, yes. And I think it, like what you're saying. I think holding yourself to deadlines and mm -hmm. being able to actually like articulate what you're you're thinking or saying beyond beyond a tweet is you're often like, oh, like I do need to like expand to. 2000 words and yeah and like exactly like i'm i'm really great about hitting word count and i found that um when i write uh novels like my typical chapter is usually between 2000 and 4000 words and my usual mm -hmm. manuscript count is about like 90 to 100,000 words so because of all that experience doing journalism like i know exactly like, oh, 2,000 words is this. So if I'm going to do it like that, I should structure it this way. I should have a turning point around here. Uh, and my day job is, like, I did uh, technical writing for a, a while, mm -hmm. and I've shifted into, like, marketing writing. And that's the same mm -hmm. thing, where it's, like, yep. you have a target audience, you have a voice, you have a structure. I would say you don't need it to be a creative writer, but it really helps. <laughs> it helps you meet, meet deadlines much easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I I'd be interested then, you know, obviously you, you've had your, your non-Star Wars books and, and publications and mm -hmm. and with, when you get the call for from a certain point of view or the email or mm -hmm. whatever it was, what what was that like for you clicking into fiction mode, crafting a story within Star Wars and having opportunities, just a few pages, but an opportunity to say, okay, here is what I want to see if I'm writing something in Star Wars. So my agent asked me when, when I first signed with him, he, he asked like what my dream projects were. And I said, like, I want to write Star Wars. <laughs> like very specifically, yes. I want to write like prequel era Star Wars. Mm -hmm. um, so what he did, because the, the Delray team does all sorts of different IPs. I think Star Wars is probably just the most visible mm -hmm. one. But so as he got to know them, he always floated that like, you know, here's this writer, let me send you all of his books. I think he'd be really great for Star Wars. <laughs> oh. He really loves Star Wars. He writes about Star Wars for these other sites anyway. So it's like his depth of knowledge is there. So he actually messaged me maybe like two weeks before we got the actual call. He said like, oh, they're, um, 
don't tell anyone this, but they're putting together another from certain point of view anthology and like I'm pushing for your name to be on it. Um, so like no guarantees, but like, you know, it we're talking. And I'm like, okay, that's good. But like in publishing, like nothing happens fast. Right. Um, so I'm like, I probably won't hear about this for like another two months. So I just kind of put it out of my head. And then like two weeks later, my agent called and he said, Lucasfilm wants you, like they want you to do a story for this. So then I talked with Tom Heller, who um, he's like the big, like the head of the, uh, the Star Wars imprint. Um, and he said, these are the characters that are left. I, I got asked, I got invited in probably about halfway through. Half of the, the main, like the stories were already taken up. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking at this list and it's like, droid who swears at C-3PO. <laughs> uh, like it seems like that. Yeah. And so I actually, um, they, they said, like, submit a pitch or two mm-hmm. um, and we'll make it work. And so I submitted five. Hmm. Um, and Tom, Tom uh, tells me that, like, no one else has ever submitted five <laughs> pitches. <laughs> but I, really, I wanted to show, like, my breadth oh, of yeah. knowledge. Um, and then, like, on the list is Palpatine. And so I asked Tom, like, why has no one picked Palpatine yet? And he goes... I think people are intimidated by Palpatine. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking at the list and I think like, if I'm going to try to make a mark on canon, like, yeah, I had this like clever pitch about like the droid who swears at C3PO that right. like, gave me like a history and a reason for doing it. But like that doesn't impact anything. So like if I'm going to do something, I'm going to try to make it mean something. So I wrote the pitch for the story that became Disturbance. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and it was like, I don't know if they'll let me get away with this, but here is Palpatine discovering the identity of Luke Skywalker. And it's because of Anakin and it ties into Revenge of the Sith um, <laughs> and the Clone Wars. And there's like imagery of like Padme and all this stuff. And I'm like, there's no way they're going to let me do this. Like, I'm just some dude who came on, you right. know, like I have no history with Lucasfilm, but then they accepted it. And I, and when I set, submitted the pitches, I said specifically, if I can do the Palpatine one, that is my preference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just treated it as like a big audition piece. Yeah. Um, and I tried to weave in, like, even though this takes place during the original trilogy, I try to weave in as many ties to the prequels and Clone Wars and the Revenge of the Sith novel by mm-hmm. Matt Stover, like specifically into that to um, just basically be like, hire me to do something with that <laughs> time period, please. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll, we will talk a lot about the Matt Stover, uh, Run to the Sith, as we get into uh, the Brotherhood discussion. Because, again, like what you said, like it was an incredible audition piece, if only because I love those anthology books. And I've loved them, obviously, like what we've been talking about since the Expanded Universe days. Like, they've always mm-hmm. been times where you can kind of like just like get a full breadth of Star Wars and also kind of see upcoming talent or people that you would be like, okay, I wonder what they could do with Clone Wars, what they could do with a fully fledged novel. And so then when they announced Brotherhood, pretty, I mean, for me, it seemed pretty soon after uh, the release of, of, from a certain point of view, Empire. It was very exciting, if only uh, your name and then also just Obi-Wan and Anakin. What yeah. was that process like for you finally being able to, like you're saying, that's, that is the exact time period that you were really going for, right? It's not even, yeah. it's not even a, a, a Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith bridge. It's really an Attack of the Clones, Clone Wars bridge, which is, exactly, which yeah. is crazy. Um, and so what was a, the, the pitch or the, you know, getting that call from Tom or getting that call from Del Rey and how did you start formulating what that looks like in both of these characters' lives? So I, I had looked at like, what are 
what are the characters that I, I want to work with? And it's always like these master and apprentice pairs from that era. So yeah. it's like, I would have like, if you put in my list, it's always like Dooku and Qui-Gon, Qui-Gon and Anakin, <laughs> Anakin and Obi-Wan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not Qui-Gon and Anakin, but you know, Qui-Gon yeah. and Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan and Anakin, Anakin and Ahsoka. It's like, if I could do anything, like it would be in that sphere. Um, and so I remember like very specifically getting the call um, from my agent because uh, I picked it up and I said right away, I'm like, I don't have anything on sub. Why are you calling me? <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, okay, sit down, buddy. <laughs> Lucasfilm wants to talk to you. Um, so we were doing homeschool kindergarten at the time, which is like the worst thing in the world. <laughs> like I don't recommend it for anyone because this is, this is like May, 2021. So we were ending like the homeschool kindergarten year and, and so like I'm trying to do that and like you know deal with like my day job and then my agent calls and then like, so my wife comes home from something and she hears me say clone wars and she just looks at me and then I'm like it's Eric like I point at my phone and then she, like she's just like do it do it do it because I was really concerned with the the, the time period mm -hmm. like for how do you accomplish a Star Wars novel Rebecca Roanhorse had actually told me that for Resistance Reborn, she had three months to do it. Oh I'm like, gosh. that's physically impossible. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, like, with this, like, I was already on contract with HarperCollins for something, and my wife was just like, do it. We'll figure it out. Just tell Eric you'll do it. Yeah. And so, like, that's that's what we did. <laughs> yeah. um, and so my editor, um, Alex Davis, like, he set up a call um, just to, like, kind of talk loosely about ideas and, like, the idea, like, they, so they communicated that they wanted it to be like shortly after Attack of the Clones. They wanted it to bridge into Clone Wars. They wanted it to be like, you know, that business on Cato Nemoidia. And like, those were the only loose guidelines that they gave me before this initial call. And so I wrote out like a 3000 word synopsis that like just kind of sprung into my head. Um, and so we get on the call and I tell Alex like, I've already got an idea. Can I can I read it to you? And so <laughs> for like the next 10 minutes, I'm like reading out basically like this short story synopsis of, of Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, I think we can go with that. <laughs> so, so he had to forward it to he had to forward it to the Delray team. But like that initial that initial synopsis, like that is Brotherhood. Like we've added a lot more, mm -hmm. obviously, to it, but like the the bones of everything are are right there. So I was like, I'm all in. I'm ready to do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I because again, the the book itself, Star Wars Brotherhood, which by the time that you're listening is out, and if you haven't seen me post on Twitter about how much it's great, it's great. Uh, <laughs> and, and as you said, it really deals with the business on Kate and Ammonia that we've heard a lot about. Um, kind of touched on the labyrinth of evil in the expanded universe, but this really was an opportunity to flesh out both of these characters in a way that bridges that gap of Hayden Christensen mm -hmm. to Matt Lanter and then Ewan McGregor to, to James Earl Taylor and really kind of forming the world that we see that we're plunged into for Clone Wars. And uh, I'd be interested to maybe dive into both of those characters before we talk sure. about your new characters uh, who were uh, incredible. Really quick, I want to point out, like, so I read Labyrinth yeah. of Evil when it came out. And, you know, I love James Luceno. So if you want to treat Labyrinth of Evil as that business, like nothing that happens in my book will negate that. Like they take place at two different yeah. points in the timeline. So like they can totally coexist. It's totally cool. Oh, I love that. I, that would be, uh, 
if you, that should have been the first like um like preface page like you know like to my wife thank you or whatever and then like also if you want to read labyrinth of evil <laughs> it's, also it's great it's also business yeah my my only beef with labyrinth of evil is that it like contradicts the clone wars um the gindi series with yeah. how they capture palpatine so yes like, i've always had trouble with that in my head yeah but that's not for me to figure out no, that's not for anyone to figure out anymore either <laughs> Um, so <laughs> with Anakin and Obi-Wan specifically, what was the mm -hmm. process of getting in their head and really into that 2002 Attack of the Clones mindset mm -hmm. for these two? Uh, where were they? What were you trying to accomplish by the end of your novel? How did you want them to grow or to, to get to a, a certain spot? So I have to think about, I had to think about this as both like a fan because I have defended Anakin to friends for, and my wife <laughs> for so long, uh. um, and my main thing with Anakin is that because like, it's kind of unfair to the character that you jump from Attack of the Clones to Revenge of the Sith, mm -hmm. because like his whole arc is basically just missing, and that's why the Clone Wars TV series is is so great. And like I understand, in in my perfect world, the Phantom Menace would have been like a, a TV special or mm -hmm. or like a novel or something, just like kind of kind of like the Hobbit, mm -hmm. um, you know, just like this sort of prologue. And then you would have gotten like Attack of the Clones, a Clone Wars movie, mm. and then Revenge of the Sith, because you really need that for for Anakin's arc. Like I understand why why George Lucas did it the way he did, but in retroactively it works fine now because you have the Clone Wars TV series. But at the time, it was like, you know, there's a lot missing. <laughs> so I try to get into Anakin's head about like the, the points that I always made to to friends is that here's this guy who it basically experiences like the worst trauma in the world at like nine years old mm -hmm. after already living like a hard life. And then he's whisked away into like foster care by like these weird emotionless monks who don't really <laughs> like him. Right. And then he's, he's got to be raised by like his uncle. Who's like, I don't know who you are. Right. You know? Like, or more like, more like a cousin than an uncle really. Right. Like in terms of like, if you're looking at their, their age gap. So he's got like no systemic support. To, to deal with the things that that have traumatized him and he's got like an institution that is actively being like you're the greatest but you're also the worst hmm. um so uh, and then he's got like his like evil uncle who was like come tell me everything as i try to exploit you so he's got like everything going against him and i really wanted to capture that like yeah. that all he like he cares so much about everything and he doesn't know how to do deal with that because he's never been taught he's never been given the tools to 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 deal with that and mm -hmm. i really wanted to capture that into brotherhood it's funny because my wife is actually reading it right now and she's like i'm i'm a third of the way through and i just get so sad mm -hmm. reading your book because she's like i finally understand and she's like she's she's like all the things that like i wasn't that weren't said in attack of the clones about Anakin it's like it makes so much sense now it just was like never explicitly said I'm like okay my job here is done but she's <laughs> like I'm just sad because it's like it's what could have been right I mean like not to just go on about Anakin forever but like <laughs> no. one of the key things that I really really noticed after re-watching Attack of the Clones forever you know in prep for this book was the way that Hayden Christensen he will shift his demeanor depending on who he's around mm -hmm. so if you notice like anyone that is senior to him he has like this very like reserved like 
deferential, like it's his monotone, mm -hmm. um, but it's also in his shoulders in the way that he stands. It's very like deferential to Obi-Wan, to Mace Windu, to whoever. But then when you see he's just with Padme, like he loosens up. Like he's, he's still defensive with her like on Coruscant, but then when they're on Naboo and they're like frolicking in the fields and stuff mm -hmm. and they're just talking, it's like, oh wow, you sound like a different person. And I realized like, this is a conscious acting choice mm -hmm. and that's reflecting Anakin's personality. It's like, he is so defensive around anyone that he sees as like an authority figure. So when he finally loosens up around Padme, like his whole demeanor completely changes. His voice changes. There's actually like life in it. Right. And that like, if you take the tone like his his vocal delivery in that you know on the Naboo scenes, and you compare them to how he is with Obi Wan at the beginning of Revenge of the Sith, like there's a, like there's that vibrance to it that like he doesn't have around like Mace Windu or or anyone like that. Um, so I I wanted to really build that in there as part of his character because like I mean I could be completely missing something, but to me it seems like a very conscious direction. From from George and Hayden, mm -hmm. um, that they're like, okay, he's this guy is like suppressing everything until he can't, but he doesn't know how to deal with it, and so it's like, you know, when he's around Padme, he can relax. When he feels extreme emotions like anger or rage or grief, it just explodes. Mm -hmm. um, and then by the time we get to Revenge of the Sith, he's like, he's established a friendship with Obi Wan, so he can be relaxed around him too. Mm -hmm. So that was like being able to internalize that, and then plant the seeds of like that sort of like loosening up around Obi-Wan was always there. It's just that Obi-Wan keeps trying to force him into one box. Anakin keeps trying to suppress, you know, his feelings. And so when you remove those boundaries, suddenly they can see each other for who they are. So that that's like way too long. about Anakin, but <laughs> I good. clearly think about him a lot. <laughs> um, and then with Obi-Wan, it's a, it's a transition period for him too. Because, and I take this from a lot from Master and Apprentice by Claudia mm -hmm. Gray, because like he's just filled with imposter syndrome. Right. Um, and it was funny because I was talking with Kirsten White about her Padawan novel, and we were talking about like, you know, how did you characterize your Obi Wan? And we both said imposter syndrome. And mm -hmm. it's, it's the kind of imposter syndrome where Obi Wan has such faith in his institution, and he revered Qui Gon Jinn so much that everything is built around like this, am I good enough to, to be a Jedi Knight? Am I good enough to serve on the council? Am I good enough to live up to this promise that I gave to Qui-Gon Jinn while he was dying, <laughs> you know? So a lot of Obi-Wan's, his reservations about himself are like, he's just constantly questioning, have I done the right thing? Because he cares about like the right thing so much in a different way than Anakin cares about stuff. Um, and Obi-Wan is always concerned with like, have I made the right choice? Like, did I do the right thing? And because of that, it made sense to me that he, that's why he's so harsh on Anakin. Because he's like, I promised Qui-Gon I would train you and to train you, like this is what the Jedi said training you is going to be. So right. I have to do this. Right. Uh, and then once he sees that Anakin can, can thrive on his own, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't have to push you like the square peg into the round hole anymore. I don't have to put like these binders on you. It's mm -hmm. like, you're just Anakin and like we can work together. And hey, you know, I actually kind of like you now. <laughs> <laughs> so the trick is like to be able to establish that with just like a few months between Attack of the Clones and the Clone Wars, it, it 
the goal was to like show that like this was already there. Mm-hmm. It's just like their their mindsets had to change. Yeah. No, it's again very poignant, very interesting, and also just it it once you read it, you're like, oh, this makes sense. Like it, and that's I think the best type of of Star Wars novel where it plugs in the holes that are needed, but in a way that feels natural and feels earned. And I think what's interesting is you do the same thing with two new characters, uh, the initiate Mill and then mm-hmm. Rug, a Nemoidian guard, but especially. Mel, if you were like, oh, Anakin had a connection with a youngling even before Ahsoka, and you said that before Clone Wars came out, right, ten years mm-hmm. ago, it would it would almost seem completely out of character for Anakin to even have any at- attachment to any youngling, just because you, oh, he's selfish or he, you know. But then now that we've had Ahsoka, it's like, okay, how did actually he make this jump? And, yeah. and, and this is an incredible little piece of his history that makes complete sense. Also, is an incredible new character. And I'd be interested to delve into both of those new additions and mm-hmm. where you felt they were needed and and how they started to develop as their own characters rather than just even a plot point. So for Mill, it was very much, um, I wanted, the first thing that I came up with was like, I need an emotional foil for Anakin um and it couldn't be I mean it, it physically couldn't be Ahsoka obviously <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I think she's not introduced yet um so but then I started to think like okay well it does it's really kind of jarring like there was like the marketing perspective of like you know the Clone Wars movie Anakin hasn't a Padawan and you're like what you're like, well, yeah <laughs> how did that happen yeah. <laughs> so from from an in-universe like logic there had to be like this planting of like leadership traits and mentorship traits that like the other Jedi recognize. So there was important to bring those to life, but I wanted, I wanted something like in a completely different way than like the Anakin Ahsoka relationship. Um, And I, I, so with Mill, the idea is she's uh, inspired by uh, Nausicaa from the Miyazaki Mm. movie, who is Mm. like, like pacifist, warrior princess she's Mm -hmm. she's so awesome um but she's very very empathetic and she's empathetic with like the wildlife around her and so with mill the idea is that like she's like an empath jedi that she can like physically feel the suffering of others so when there is a war going on like like since geonosis she's just like in constant like migraines and nausea and and she's like i don't understand this and, and she can like detect it specifically from from people so the idea was ultimately anakin is hiding pieces of himself to everyone to obi-wan to palpatine to padme like he can never be completely honest with anyone and so here's this youngling who is not so indoctrinated by the jedi that she's like able to be like what is happening you know she's still she's still young enough and she has like this physical barrier to accepting the war and through like her empath abilities that she's like able to distance herself just enough to be like why are we doing this right but then with anakin in particular like she's able to see all of him and she sees like the damage in him and she like she's got this like emotional uh, um, empathy, but then also like this physical empathy that no one else has. So it was really important to like balance Anakin because this book really is, I, I mean, like, it's an Obi-Wan novel for sure, but like it's does most of it's like emotional lifting with Anakin because he's got the biggest arc to, to bridge. Like you have to go from like 
angry Attack of the Clones Anakin to like buddy hero Anakin in right. Clone Wars. And so there's a lot there's a lot more work to do there. So so Mill was really a really cool tool to do that. Yeah. And then diving into the Nemoidian culture of it all and with Rug, uh again, like it, it's such an interesting we've had Clone Wars, we've seen Nemoidian since 1999, but we've never I've never thought about their culture and about like who they are yeah. beyond just being bad guys. And it really again, it's just like a beautiful like you're like, oh yeah, of course. Like of course, like they're not just the Trade Federation, right? Of course they're not mm-hmm. just New Gunray. How is that like for you, both crafting Rug and her partner, but then also just the entire Nemoinian culture that we hadn't really we'd seen that kind of stuff on screen, but not necessarily focused on their art and on their history and on on their actual personality as a as a species and as a culture. So that was actually one of the the bullet points that was sent to me really early on where they're like come up with the pitch these are some of the ideas we'd like to fold into it and one of them was like make the nemoidians a people and and try to have like a cool nemoidian (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't it wasn't we weren't like they didn't say like have this nemoidian be like an active protagonist who's helping someone it was just like have someone that could be like relatable and also expand on their culture right um and when i talked with my editor about it. Um, so Alex is also a big Star Trek fan. So uh-huh. I said immediately, I said like, basically do like the Ferengi in Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. And he's like, exactly, we <laughs> want to do that. Uh-huh. So Rug's name, Rug Cornum, is actually a nod to Quark, Rom, and Nog from oh, Deep Space it. Nine. I just kind of like mixed it up a little <laughs> bit. <clears throat> but this, so the the idea is that, um, and also as a character, um, Rug is, I pitched her as, um, as Kira from Deep Space Nine meets Garrus from Mass Effect. Mm. So she's like, she's like a resistor. She's world weary. She like, she doesn't really care that much about the Trade Federation, but she cares about her people. And so she's like, you know, she's done terrible things because she thinks like, she understands the scope of galactic politics and war. And she's like, I can only control like this little segment of my people's lives. So this is what I'm going to do. So the idea really was, to like move beyond what we see in in the Phantom Menace because it's really not a lot, mm-hmm. and and even Qui Gon says like these Federation types are cowards and it's like that's painting with a really wide brush, Qui Gon. <laughs> <laughs> I guess like it, you know it's funny like if you could go back, I would update the line to like Federation leadership are often cowards or something <laughs> like that. Like don't call all of them that. Yeah. Um, and and so actually I had totally forgotten that they were um that they were technically neutral in the clone wars um like with, with lot dodd you know mm-hmm. and in the senate and everything so in like my original pitch it was like um obi-wan's trying to like lobby them into like uh to like to leave the separatists and then uh, alex was like oh remember like they're actually technically neutral it's like you know new gun race splinter is like you know the extremist faction but like you know they they have this like guise of neutrality the whole time like oh that's right Mm -hmm. so i had to like rewrite my (laughs) that part of my pitch which actually uh, wasn't that difficult um because it because most of it was more centered on like not so much their political framing but like how obi-wan reacts to them and then also like how we come to understand them and then like what do the actual like the the general public of of the Nemoidians actually understand. So, you know, like they're not all like new gunray. They're like, we're just people living here. And like, we've been caught up in this too. And, and a lot of that was, I mean, it's a real world allegory to basically any war ever. 
where, you know, the leadership wants to do one thing and then you have 99.9% of the people who are like, we're just kind of caught up in this and a lot of us are dying. So that sucks. And so it was really important to like ground that in a reality that felt like relatable and also like important to make Rue be cool. Like, right. you know, because like, they deserve a cool character that's not Newt Gunray or a lot right. of <laughs> Don't forget that's Rune Hako erasure, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, and I think again, like the way that the Nemoidians are really portrayed, especially Phantom Menace, and even the name Newt Gunray being like Newt Gingrich, like it's like very, it's Lucas being very particular. But then, mm-hmm. but but again, just it's one of the things that still is one of my main takeaways from the book is like every culture that is portrayed in the Clone Wars has the people affected by it right like and that's something that we yeah. kind of forget about like when we're just watching the show and say, oh, that's a fun battle or that's you know we're on this world and i think uh it's a, a really masterful job and, and one of the, the the real highlights for me and another another highlight and we were kind of talking about it before we, we dived in was the anakin padme relationship mm-hmm. uh, if only again because i was reading queen's hope and then I immediately was like, oh, Queen's Hope, great. Let me, I was just like on a Star Wars kick and I was like, oh, let me open the ARC and let me read through, <laughs> let me just read Brotherhood. And I devoured both in three days, which I have not done with books in a long time. And I, I highly recommend reading Queen's Hope and Brotherhood back to back. Oh, it's, I, I, I echo that. It is, it was, it was the most fun I'd had, like doing something Star Wars in such a long time, especially as just a huge prequel fan. What was it like? I'm sure you were communicating with E.K. Johnson a lot, mm-hmm. uh, but then also just crafting your own Anakin-Padme relationship and and the Obi-Wan aspect of it all, too. Like, why was that important for you? And obviously with Anakin's arc during this, what were you trying to hit in terms of emotional beats and in terms of his his growth as a character? So I, I very early on in the pitch, I wanted, like, date night. Uh-huh. for Padme and Anakin. And and the big part of that is is like we don't get to see that. Um and and like there's always like the you know why do these two fall for each other besides the fact that they're hot. Right. You know, it's like <laughs> we need a little more of that. Right. Um like I know there's always there's been talk in the fandom forever where it's like oh well of course Anakin doesn't know how to talk to women. And of course like Padme is like totally buttoned up. So it's like it would be natural. But like you don't you shouldn't need to, it's nice to be actually see that. Right. You know, it's you, you don't want to have to rely on like a bullet point like character guide in order to make like a marriage feel real. <laughs> so right. I wanted like an Anakin and Padme date night where we saw like all the things that are implied about like, you know, like their, their history, like why they feel this way about each other, like what they recognize in each other. I wanted like a few chapters to like really breathe with that. So once, once the synopsis got approved, I messaged EK Johnston Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, you are the Padme master. Can I run things past you? Mm -hmm. And so she sent me the PDF of Queen's Hope and she sent me, she is, she has like these handwritten outlines that she like took photos of and she uh-huh. emailed them over to me. So everything that I based about um, Padme's reactions, Padme's thought process, I mean, it's through Anakin's right. point of view, but it's like, you know, the way that he understands Padme, like the persona of Padme, like I built it all on reading uh, Kate's books mm-hmm. because I I remember like Queen's, uh, Queen's Shadow in particular, I was like, oh, I really understand Padme now. Yeah. And so like, I wanted her understanding of Padme to be like what we see in Brotherhood. Um, and so it was important to like, to get that relationship to feel 
real. And so, and, and then also understand like the, you know, cause Padme is like, her brain is always working. And so to, to get that in there, like I would send Kate scenes and I'd be like, does this sound like Padme? Like, did, would she do this? You know? And, and so I would get the thumbs up from her. So it was really important for it to, to not just sync up from like timelines and references, but like the character had to feel the exact same all the way through. Yeah. And I had, uh, I also like, I, I don't care about clothes <laughs> at all. <laughs> and, but clothes are, you know, very, very important to how Padme operates. So I asked Kate, like, you know, I gave her a bullet list of scenes and I'm like, these are the scenes that Padme is going to be in. She's going to be with like Anakin here, or they're going to be doing this. Like, what would she be wearing? Mm. So all of the wardrobe choices in there are, or Kate emailing me, like, you know, it's going to be something like this. Her <laughs> hair is going to be up. She may or may not have jewelry. Um, so, but that's all like getting, trying to get a really deep understanding of who Padme is. Like it just, it was just really important to, to line up with it because I love the work that she did with, uh, with her whole trilogy. Mm-hmm. And then with Obi-Wan, I mean, there's always the question of like, how much does Obi-Wan know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, he says it in the first scene of Attack of the Clones when, yeah. you know, like they're in the elevator. It's like, he knows, right. he knows that she, he's infatuated with Padme. Um, and then like on the gunship over Geonosis, he's like yelling at, at Anakin be, to be like, focus on war, not your crush. Right. You know, so it's like, it's not a secret. Um, so then the idea was how much does he know? And then what does he do about it? I think that the question of like, what does he do about it? It was like the much bigger point um, because we want, like he, he's like, he's no longer Anakin's master, but he's on the council. So like these, like what he does about this breach of conduct, like is important. So, so Obi-Wan, like I, he couldn't know everything, you know, like that, that part was clear. So it was like, I had to frame how much he knows and then like this internal wrestling about it. And I wanted to tie that into his trust in Anakin as a person mm-hmm. um, and how that evolves uh, into like them being you know brothers as opposed to antagonists. Right. So it, it took a few iterations to get right. Like it, it was a little bit like too much this way or too much that way at first, but I, I think we like threaded the needle well on that. And that was a lot of help with, with my editor. For sure. No. And again, it really works out very well and it makes, makes complete sense. And I guess a final, final small note, just me being stupid, but you did get to write the most important character in Star Wars, Dexter Jetster, which is a huge, what a, what a, what a move right there. It was nice seeing him back again. I think he makes a little appearance in Queen's uh, Hope as well. And so it's like, oh, like, what was it like to just kind of, I think Obi-Wan and Dex's relationship is so interesting because mm-hmm. it is like it is kind of a peek into Obi Wan's world before we really see him, and then it was bringing in Satine. It was using Dex as an yeah. opportunity to bring in Satine. Uh, what was that whole kind of pre Padawan Obi Wan world that you were trying to build and using Dex to do so? What were you trying to accomplish, and how was that kind of all threading a, a, a larger story? So um, w- when I was it's not like I, I wasn't given like a list of characters <laughs> that, that I could or couldn't use. Yeah. Um, but like, uh, there were some logical ones to ask for. And my, when, when we started to hash out like this overarching synopsis into like more individual story beats, my editor actually said, I think Dex is available if you mm. want to do something with him. <laughs> um, 
And I'm like, oh, does that mean they're not going to use him in any of the TV shows? <laughs> <laughs> but they like they gave me full ability to to fill in his backstory. Yeah. And to me, it, it made sense. Like, okay, if in Attack of the Clones, if Obi Wan goes to him to see like what is this like obscure piece of equipment, Dex has to know things. Um, you know, so he's got to have some sort of like underworld history because it's not like. He he doesn't strike me as like the ex academia type, you know, um, and, and like so if you're going to know things, you're either like like a smuggler slash information broker, or you're a professor. And Dex does not seem like a professor. Yeah. So um, I went with the the idea of like the shadow broker from Mass mm -hmm. Effect, mm -hmm. like someone who basically just trades in other people's secrets and like, but also allows them to like keep a certain level of anonymity so like bounty hunters are just like trying to kill each other um so he's like he worked as the middleman for that so i just try to fill in a little bit of that gap it's wide open for other people who want to write the dexter jetster adventures the i whole hope. novel right yeah yeah i i hope someone does that sometime <laughs> as a character like his voice is really strong and it's like i don't remember his voice actor's name but uh, i know he he did such a really like distinctive mm -hmm. job like not just with the dialogue on on screen but like his pauses the way he laughs like you know the way he enunciates like so writing his dialogue felt really really natural mm -hmm. it's like oh this is where he would like take a breath and then he would chuckle a little bit um so it was just it was just really cool to be able to to build I think it's nice when Jedi have friendships outside of the Jedi Order. And so since we already had a step into that with Attack of the Clones, to be able to build into that and show like they do have a history together and there's a lot of affection. And Dex is not bound by the Jedi code. So he can give Obi-Wan all the crap that he wants. Um, and then Obi-Wan sasses him back. Um, and so that's why it was nice to like, it was a way to, to like, dive into like the Satine thing without explicitly, you know, having like him confront Satine, like, yeah. because that was one of the, uh, one of the notes uh, was like, you know, like you can't alter their history from the Clone Wars. You know, right. it's like, you, you can't just be like, oh, surprise, they've been hanging out all this time. And then like in Clone Wars, they're like, oh no, we haven't. Right. So they're like, okay, so you have to find a way around that. And, and Dex bringing that up and knowing about their history in a way that the Jedi wouldn't was a really, fun way to kind of triangulate that so they could sass each other about it while informing the reader yeah no it really really uh was a a nice surprise but p really fleshed out obi-wan's character even more and it was mm -hmm. a, a very very masterful use of, of the best character in star wars uh <laughs> so we've talked a lot about brotherhood and i'm sure you have a lot of uh, exciting projects that you can't talk about but is there anything as we wrap up that you would like to promote or that you have upcoming non-star wars books that people should check out and, and read especially after they finish brotherhood and are like okay, how can i read more more my gen so the nice thing is that i um so brotherhood is a little deeper character dive than some star wars books and so if you like that vibe of like science fiction like character analysis i found like readers that were like oh you, your your books totally match up with each other they just like take place in like different you know context so like that's good i think like, if you like brotherhood you will like my other books um and the easiest entry point i tell people is my uh, is called we could be heroes it was my book that came out last year 
<clears throat> and it's a superhero and supervillain become best friends <laughs> story. So and it's very inspired by um, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, and Legends of Tomorrow. So mm. if you like that kind of vibe of like, you know, more grounded, like the Marvel Netflix series, but then with like the humor of DC's Legends of Tomorrow, which I'm still very, very mad that got canceled yeah. recently because yeah. it was the best show on TV. <laughs> um, so I think uh, We Could Be Heroes will be a, a very easy pickup for you. And that sort of like buddy vibe of Obi-Wan and Anakin is very present in that book. Um, I have, um, if you like X-Files, my last novel that came out was called Light Years From Home. Um, and I pitch it as an X-Files episode, except we're focused on the family that had the alien abduction and not Mulder and Scully investigating it. <laughs> so it's very much like a family drama built around alien abduction. Mm. It, with an Ahsoka Tano uh, cameo. <laughs> <In there. laughs> that's all I can say. What a pitch. Spoiling. What a pitch. No, yeah. that's great. <laughs> um, and then upcoming, I have like uh, uh, I have a novel called Vampire Weekend coming out in January. And that's about a punk rock vampire who uses her immortality to avoid all of her childhood trauma and instead just go see bands and play in bands for decades. That's awesome. And again, um, if I have not gushed enough about Brotherhood, one of the best Star Wars books I've read in a very, very long time. So, Mike, thank you so much for coming on and telling your story and, and telling this wonderful story. Thank you for having me. I, I'm sorry I just went on and on about Anakin Skywalker. I could... I could do like a dissertation on Anakin Skywalker. Well, you pretty you pretty much did in this book, uh, yeah, that's in true. the best way, in the best way. So, uh, thank you again. so much again to Mr. Chen for taking the time and being so open with his thoughts and stories as well as his dissertation on Anakin Skywalker. Please pick up the book wherever books are sold. Thank you as well to Delray for the advanced copy and facilitating this interview as well as my producer Jason Kozlerich and my editor Alex Mirabal. As a reminder we will be having a special live panel at Star Wars Celebration on the podcast stage with the special guest to be announced. We'll see you there. Until next time stay tuned Give that five-star review. May the force be with you.